Hi, I'm Heather Reisman, and this is Well Said, a podcast on the art and science of living well. This podcast is brought to you by Indigo. Our guest today is all about overcoming obstacles, literally. Perdita Felician is one of Canada's greatest athletes, an award-winning hurdler who won 10 Canadian national titles, four world championships, and is a two-time Olympian. Her national record for the 100-meter hurdles still stands. Today, Perdita is a motivational speaker and a sports broadcaster. But Perdita's story really starts with her mother, Kathy, a quite remarkable woman whose resilience, tenacity, and determination to build a life beyond the confines of her native St. Lucia is story-worthy. So Perdita wrote it. Her new book, My Mother's Daughter, is moving and inspiring, and it's my latest Heather's Pick. It is my pleasure to welcome Perdita to Well Said. Welcome, Pretty. I love that you call me by my nickname, by the way. I love that. Happy to be here, Heather, and pinching myself about the Heather's pick. It's it's such an honor. Lovely to talk to you. Well, I'm saying Pradeek because that's what your mom kept calling you through the book. And having read the book, I now feel this connection. And man, did you ever write a story? What inspired you to write this, this story of your mother's life? You know what? Growing up, you have a keen sense of your surroundings. I never thought we were poor, but I think by definition we were. I always knew we didn't have as much as my friends did, but I always thought that the story that my mom told me about her upbringing, not being able to go to school, you know, at the age of 11 and 12. And then, you know, the fact that she was always keen to to have us go to school and wanted that for us so deeply. And then of course I become a sports star and always in the back of my mind, Heather, it was like, well, how did my mother, all that I know of her, which wasn't tons, right? How did I get here then? Like, what is all the stuff in between? And I didn't have all the answers in between. And it wasn't until I was finally done with sport in 2013 that I'm like, I have to put these pieces together. And I'll tell you what, putting the the book together, as much as everyone loves it, which is amazing, it wasn't necessarily for the masses, respectfully. It was a woman trying to figure out her origins. And for a long time, track and, and racing was my singular focus. And I never had to confront who I was. And now it was like, I'm gonna make this make sense for me. All the puzzle pieces that I don't have, I'm gonna go back in the past and try and find them and put this, this jigsaw puzzle of my life together. Were there a thousand drafts that you threw out? Did you scrap? Did you start? Did you ever feel like, am I gonna get through this? <laughs> I've never shared this. So I started writing in, The idea was 2012, 2013 when I retired. I didn't start writing until 2014 because for two years I was so scared. Like, how do you do this? I've never done this. And so, but as I had the idea, I was trying to get agents behind it. Nobody would really take it on. Like, they were lovely. They were nice. They're like, this is great that you want to do this. It sounds like an amazing story, but it's just not right for us. And so I could not get anyone to do it. And this is up until 2016. But Heather, I don't know if you know anything about Olympians, especially Canadian ones, right? We do not back down. We do not give up. And so I thought, aha, nobody wants this book. That's not going to discourage me. I'm just going to have to figure it out myself. And so I wrote, I wrote, I went to the University of Chicago. They have a two-year certificate program for creative nonfiction. I enrolled there. And that program really helped develop, you know, my confidence as a writer that I could do this myself. And I remember Kevin Davis, my instructor on the first day, because I had a little bit of a few notes and stuff. And he's like, you have something. 
This is something and you can be the one to write it. And honestly, Heather, it took off from there. So yes, thousands of drafts after that. <laughs> it finally got picked up, but uh, it took a while. You know, I've only lived life in a woman's skin. So I only know from my point of view, but between my experience and what I've heard from so many women, we are so often told when we have an idea, this can't happen. You know, when I was going to start Indigo, I was like close to 50. I had already been working for some time and I had never been in the book business. I had never been in retail. I'd been in other businesses and I had this vision for creating something. And if I tell you the number of people who told me I was nutty and the final person, you know, said the best of businesses don't make it like, just know this. And as you say, don't you find the only difference between those who do and those who don't is that those who do, do. Right. And we're not asking for your permission. We're not asking for you to believe in us because here's the thing. We believe in us. And I think, you know, you gave me goosebumps when you described that you started this close to 50 and nobody would take it on because how many other women have there have an idea and they've been told, yeah, it's been done or it's kind of not going to fly. And they swallow that. They, they put it to bed or they snuff it out. I would say hundreds of thousands, right? But I want to encourage anyone listening to us. You have to believe in yourself so fiercely and so much, right? And the doubt will come. Just because you believe in yourself doesn't mean like the doubt and the fear won't be there. But you have to be so unshakable in the idea that you will get to where you want to go. Do you feel that having at least one person who believes in you as fiercely as possible, even more fiercely than you yourself. Do you see that as critical to success? I, I think that's super important. And I think quickly, the reason that's important is one, we all have a dream. We all have something that we want to do. And even if the naysayers come, I do believe you need someone who is there who believes in you because when that doubt creeps in, when that fear creeps in, they're almost like a security or safety blanket, right? Like my mom realized that I had doubts about racing and doubts about, you know, being, you know, really good on the track that even when I decided to quit, she was there, right? She kind of like was able to do it. So I do believe it's truly important to have that one cheerleader in your corner. So the days that you can't carry your dream to the start line, right? That person is there to give you that extra tug and that extra push and be like, go Pradeep, you can do that. So to the book, you bring us so meaningfully into every step of your mother's life from the time she was a young girl joyfully selling seashells to the tourists on the beaches of St. Lucia, through her key relationships with the man who fathered you and your siblings, and to some brutally hard times she experienced trying to build her life in Canada. And I just wonder, was it difficult to revisit your mother's life so intimately? Ah, deep sigh, Heather, deep sigh. So I'll tell you one of the areas that was really difficult for me to mine. It was how I came to be. Anyone that's read My Mother's Daughter knows that I don't know my biological father. I've never met him. I couldn't pick him out of a, you know, a lineup. And I wrote for a long time around that scene, around that moment, because now I am talking to my mother, not as her daughter, right? But as another woman, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. and now I have to piece together what were the circumstances that allowed me to be here? You know, how did I get here? Yeah, biologically we get it, yeah, 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 yeah. But then to dig into that, I knew it would be painful for her. There's a scene in the book where I talk about understanding that I am, you know, a one night stand, right? Mm -hmm. As a teen. And I, I saw my mother's face flash, like 
you know, as beet red as a tomato and just how she was affected by my questioning. Like, cause I wanted to know I'm a teenager. Like, how did I get here? Where's my dad? What's up? Mm-hmm. And when Heather, I saw her reaction, I knew that I had touched a nerve and I realized, oh, my mother is not comfortable with this conversation, this topic. And I never discussed my bio dad again, hmm. but I knew for the book to truly be authentic and for readers to discover who I was along with me. I had to show you that time. I had to show you what I found out and what I knew. And there was no way around it. So revisiting that with her was hard. And of course, the moments where, you know, my father's trying to put her out in the middle of the night and throwing her things onto the oh, lawn. and oh. Yeah, having to pick up her purse and her, her necklaces and her perfume. And those things were really hard to revisit. And I didn't realize how close to the surface, decades later, those moments were still for my mother. I was struck so many times in the book by the callousness, the callousness from the employers to the fathers of her children. And, you know, I had to put the book down like several times because I felt it in my gut. Some of it just seemed like cruelty, like cruelty. But it seemed at least in your telling that her North Star ambition for her family was so strong that she weathered it. And I kept thinking, like, what kept her going? It's like, it's almost, you know, the image I had in my mind is she was a life hurdler. Can I steal that? Can I coin that? I'll I'll always cite you because that's beautiful how you said that. A life hurdler, right? Shouldn't we all aspire to be that? Yeah, you are right. And that's one of the things I wondered about as I was writing and discovering these things. Like the scene of when I come into the world, you know, she's in the basement of this family that she's taking care of. She goes into labor with me, but before they can, you know, kind of reluctantly take her to Oshawa General Hospital, she has to make them tuna sandwiches and, and very specific tuna sandwiches, right? She has to rid them of their crust. She has to cut them in a certain way and then freeze them in paper towels so that they're preserved longer. They don't get freezer burn. I didn't know that. And so I'm a trained broadcaster. So as I'm really mining these stories for my mother, there's a, there's a part of me, and I'm not proud to admit this, There's a part of me that like I had that broadcaster hat on. So I wasn't emotionally connecting with the stuff. What was most important to me is the details and are they truthful and and what is remembered, what is not. It wasn't until after that I'm reading the book and women and readers are reacting to that particular scene that I actually went there and I'm seeing my mother and my humanity and how I came into the world. This woman is in active labor and having to make food for her employers. You use the word callous and it's so right. So many people were so callous, you know, in their treatment of her. So your mom really encouraged you. Like, I think what was amazing is you were sort of winning these meets and two people, your mom and a boyfriend actually had to encourage you. So tell us a little bit about how you're you're on this transition moment. You're applying to college. You've got all these colleges wishing for you and you're kind of like leaving those requests in a shoebox or somewhere in a corner and share a little bit with the audience about that that moment and take us you know through the boyfriend and up to your mom's uh borrowing that five thousand dollars you know i'm 40 i'm I'm turning 41 in august of 2021 and i cringe heather at if 17 and 16 year old perdita would have gotten to run her life right like what would have happened so (laughs) yeah i i was a gifted athlete right i was very gifted but i didn't know how gifted i was And I remember my boyfriend at the time was a track star and this is like grade nine and 10. And he said, you are one of the best athletes 
if not one of, you know, the best track and field athlete Canada, you know, especially on the women's side has ever produced. He's like, you don't know how good you can be. And I shrugged it off, whatever. And I went to this one race, you know, I, I, running was great, but it wasn't my passion. And I went to this one race and I would just win. And I started getting heavily recruited from American universities, full ride scholarships, Harvard, USC, Illinois, Purdue, Notre Dame, all over the place. And I would just, oh, this is great. This is fun. And I would take all the recruiting letters and all their programs and put them in this milk crate and just put it in my closet. And one day my boyfriend, who I have to say, uh, loved track and field, his whole life wanted to just go to the States and compete, but could not get any offers. So then he sees his girlfriend, you know, over a year and a half has all these recruiting letters. And he's like, you are just going to regret this one day. At the same time, my mom is getting wind of this, you know, because he'd come over and he'd talk about it. And so my mother's on like this thing now where, oh, he says that this is an opportunity. And so she's nagging. And, you know, back then it was nagging. Maybe it's encouragement, but it was nagging. And I reluctantly agreed to go down this path. But Heather, I'll tell you why I didn't want to go down the path is I didn't like the idea of leaving my mom. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like the idea of leaving her because, you know, she depended on us. She needed us. And my mom is, is fiercely independent, but you, I was her protector, right? I was her witness. I, I, how could I leave that? You were a unit. Yes, exactly. Brilliant. And I'm not going to break us up to go to the big, mighty USA. No. And these are full ride scholarships. And they constantly call you. So imagine every week having to be on the phone with some coach. I'm not interested. And I would say, don't call me back. I'm not going. I guess I finally gave in because my mother was on me so much. And so was my boyfriend at the time, which Heather, let me add, right. And this is as the, you know, 40 year old woman. Now, you know, we were teenagers. What did we know about anything? Right. First loves. And we loved each other deeply. I will always say that about us. He could have been jealous. He could have been vindictive. Do you know what I mean? He could have been that kind of partner was like, well, no, you don't, you don't get to do that. Do you know what I mean? Like he was not. Well, what struck me just as a sidebar here, often we hear that people pick in relationships, the same kind of partners or spouses or that their parents pick mother or father. And I was struck by even he's a small part of the story. He seemed the opposite. He seemed so generous, so loving. I mean, he didn't just encourage you once. That was interesting to me yeah. that he was so different. Hey, let's get back to that. I love that, that you've noticed that and other readers definitely have as well. So I get the scholarship offer. I decide to go to the University of Illinois, but there's a hitch in the plan which there seems to always be with anything that has to do with my mother and I. The university says, wait, you got a full scholarship? Fantastic. You don't have to pay anything. So we think we're scot-free. Except we get a letter saying, oh, before you can even arrive to campus, your, your, your parents, you know, they think I'm in a dual household. They don't know. Has to show that they have a minimum of $5,000 in the bank just for your own security and, you know, anything, you know, for you to get true admission. Well, Heather... $5,000. <laughs> what? No, $50 in the bank to my mother is a good balance to have, but she's checked a check. My mother didn't have the money. And that is the one big hiccup. So this is what happens. Serendipity, a bit of luck, however you want to frame it. My mother likes to play bingo occasionally, right? It's like her escape. And so if anyone would call the house when we were kids and they'd be like, where's your mom? We're like, oh, she's at the office. Well, we knew where the office was. The caller did it. It was bingo. Bigger was her office. 
So mom's at the office uh, and she has a bingo buddy. And so one day as I'm going through this, as she's been for weeks trying to find this $5,000, which is the one thing stopping me from actually getting to university. Her friend calls her, her longtime bingo buddy, and she's won, guess what? The jackpot, the exact amount, $5,000. Like, <laughs> like, come on. And my mother has to, now they're good friends, but do you just give someone $5,000 cash? My mom asks this woman to borrow it. And they concoct a scheme or a scam. Just long enough. Just long enough. She wants it just in the bank, right? Yes, just in the bank so she can get the deposit slip, get that slip, and show it to the university. Well, the woman is, you know, a little hesitant and, and doubtful, and doesn't. but then she agrees. And that's how my mother gets the money to show the university. And right away, she takes it back out and gives it to her friend so her balance goes back to zero or whatever it was, which is not tons of money. And you know, Heather, I still have that slip, CIBC Bank. I still have that slip. Yeah. 1999. I'll never forget October. You talk about her being your biggest cheerleader. Your Olympic career came to a pretty devastating end in Athens. I mean, that's incredible when you caught your foot on one of the hurdlers. And we get a sense of that devastation as readers. But your mom says, dry your tears. You are gold. Yeah. Yeah. Like you are the gold. Like, Honestly, okay, so you have to imagine the aftermath of falling at the Olympics as the world champion, as the favorite. I have not lost a race at the Olympics. And then I get to the final and I fall at hurdle one. So in the immediate aftermath, nobody knows what to do with me. I am inconsolable. I'm a crumpled mess. Almost like my body doesn't have bones. Like I'm just soup and just loopy. So they're dragging me and they're taking me to this room. The only thing anyone can think to do is to call my mom. Now, cell phones and satellite phones back then were very clunky. So they take out this big clunky phone and they call her from thousands of miles away. And just to connect us, just to connect us. And the first thing that strikes me, Heather, is how clear and and confident my mother's voice is. Because Mm. I, I, I don't have my voice. I can't. You know, everything is gone from me. The wind, the life, everything is gone. And here's my mother so sure and so predite dry your eyes. Oh, I know this voice. I've heard it all my life. And I, it commands me. Mm-hmm. And that Heather gave me life. It gave me breath. Amazing. Yeah. And then she says, you are the gold. And I'm like, I can, I can joke about this now. But I'm like, are you a poet? Like, who are you a writer? Like, where did you get that from? Like, it was so, it was everything I needed. Do you know what I mean? I choke up. I choke up just reading it. It's so beautiful. So you have a daughter now of your own. So Are there elements of your mom that you recognize and how do you approach instilling in your daughter the things that you so value that your mom instilled in you? So I will say this, and I'm trying not to get emotional when I think about my mother and my journey and my daughter today, who's two. Getting Nova to come to the world was hard. She was an IVF baby and I was writing my mother's daughter at the time. So there was something that felt so cruel about my life at the time that I'm writing a, ah. an intimate story about my mother. I'm married, you know, I'm now 38. I've put, you know, my, my whole life into track, but now I want to be a mom and I can't conceive. And the only way to do that is with intervention. So Nova comes into the world in 2019 of the spring and it was not an easy arrival. She's in the NICU and it's hard. And I will tell you, I was concerned about her safety and her life and, and you know, her risk to her and, and to myself. Yes. 
But one of the things that was in the back of my mind the entire pregnancy, and I'm not, I'm embarrassed to even say it, but it's the truth, is I was like, God, her life is not going to be as hard as mine. It's not. And I thought that would be a disservice to her, right, Mm -hmm. at the time. I don't feel that way today. And the epiphany came to me only weeks ago as my mother's daughter is out in the world. And this is the epiphany. Yes, I do believe that my mother's hardship and our hardship together has made me and, and, and made me who I am and the pain of it. Yes. It's what my mother did with her pain and what I've done with my pain that matters. But truthfully, what I got from my mother is more than the pain of it is the example that mm-hmm. she had. Mm-hmm. So regardless of what the hardships would have been in her life, it's the example of who my mother is. And so in the last few weeks and months, I realized I simply have to be an example to Nova, who's two, of what I want her to be. It's her seeing me being resilient in my own life. It's her seeing me be grateful in my own life. It's her seeing me fall and coming down in my own life, but standing up and being tall. I don't have to pass on my pain to my daughter. I thought I did. Mm -hmm. I thought she needed my pain to be resilient and to be thankful and to be great. It can stop here and she can still be as strong and stronger than all the generation of women who came before her. She'll have her own journey. So what does your mom think of the book? <laughs> Has she read it all? <laughs> <laughs> what does she think? She, um, she loves it. She loves it. She loves it. But I, I know that there are parts, and she said this to me, I can't read the, the hard parts, the parts with Bruce, mm-hmm. um, my dad. She can't read it. You know, the parts of him putting her out, there's parts that she has to skip over. But what she has left me with is, I'm so proud of this book because the hardest thing, and I didn't know this, the hardest thing, Pradeep, that I've ever done in my life was leaving your dad, was mm-hmm. leaving your dad. I thought the hardest thing would have been her leaving St. Lucia and leaving her kids. No, it was leaving him, that breaking that, that cycle of abuse and being on her own without him was hard. And so she says to me, this book is showing other women who were in or are in that situation that they can get out and they can just reframe their life any way that they want. So she's proud. And what advice would you share with others on how to take a gift or a passion and turn it into something that's one's biggest dream? Yeah, so two important things. And this is just being real. If you look at my resume, you know, I I pretty much have everything that there is to have in sport except one thing. And that's Olympic gold. And at the beginning of my career, that's what I, once I knew, that's what I really wanted. If you had told me that I wouldn't have gotten it, I don't think I would have believed you because I I, I chased it fiercely. So I think what I will start by saying is you have to understand that big dream, whatever it is, that big goal, it might not, once you do get there, look the way you thought it would look. And that's okay. But the biggest thing I would say to piggyback off of that is anyone that does have a big goal and a big dream, before you can fall in love with that gold medal or what that final destination is, you have to first fall in love with the pursuit of it. Mm-hmm. You have to fall in love with the chase of it and everything wow. that goes into that. Yes. Because if you fall in love with the pursuit and the chase of it first, Heather, when you get there and it's not exactly as you dreamed it or it tastes different or it looks different, mm-hmm. it's okay because you love just getting to that point. And 
I will always say this, that Olympic gold, that Olympic moment, being in the shape of my life in 2004, the Athens Olympics, and not getting it will always be the one that got away. I would be lying to anyone if I acted like, no, it's been 18, 17 years, I'm good, no. But what I do have, Heather, is that chase. And boy, can you sink your teeth into that. Boy, has that satisfied me. And that, to me, has made it worth it, that whole entire journey. And it has to be worth it to you. We hope you've been enjoying Well Said and the meaningful conversations with experts, authors, and thought leaders to help you live with purpose and intention. Don't forget to visit indigo.ca to explore more books from your favorite podcast guests and our full wellness collection designed to help you live well. Just a couple of fun questions that we always like to end with. What book or books, if any, have had a profound impact on your life? Yeah, so... This is an old one, and it's called, it's a child's book. It's called Bridge to Terabithia. The reason it resonates, even till now I'm thinking about that book, is I'm a young child. I don't, I might have been in grade four, grade five, or maybe in grade three. But the character, the main character, he was a runner. And I thought that was really cool. Because I loved, I loved gym class and all those things. But the character in that book dies. And as a child, that was the first character in any book that I'd ever read that passed. And I felt the mourning. I felt like, you know, until this day, I'm now going to be 41 years old. I will never forget that impact of that book, of that loss. And so that one was it. And it, I think the sense that it gave me, you know, as much as it could was, wow, life is fragile. Now, I didn't literally think of it like that, but it, it made me think of, this young boy is, is gone. And when you're a kid, you think your life is, you know, infinite. You don't, you don't think of that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and for me, there's a bit of a switch that flipped like, oh, life is not eternal for everybody. Like, oh, okay. So that, that one. Make something of it. I, I know that book. That is a beautiful book. Are you reading anything now that you're particularly into? Yeah. So Saga Boy by Antonio Michael Downing. I just ordered that off of Indigo and I haven't started it yet, but I've heard great things. And I mean, Gutter Child by J.L. Richardson. Like, I mean, isn't everybody <laughs> reading her book? Right. Yes, yeah. that's a good one. Yeah. What brings you joy in life now? Hmm. God, I love your questions because they, they, I, I have to go deep. I think knowing that the people around me are safe and happy because for a long time, that wasn't always thing. Mm -hmm. So knowing that my sisters are fine and my brother is fine, my daughter is fine and my mother is great, that gives me joy. I will say when I was at university, I would constantly worry what's happening, what's going on over there. Do they need me? I don't have that worry anymore. That gives me perfect peace. And what does living with intention mean to you? I think it means I'm finding myself in these new spaces and they're wonderful they're wonderful. And I'm reminding myself, I only have to be me. I only have to sound like me, dress like me, talk like me, and that is enough. And I think sometimes, especially, you know, as a young, you know, black woman, sometimes I don't always see myself in these spaces. And you wonder, what well, do I have to pretend? Or do I have to be 
somebody else to be here. But no, I'm here based on my merit. I'm here because I am here. And so my intention every day is just to always be Perdita. And that means not dimming my light, you know, not playing things small. I think turning 40 last summer of 2020 during a pandemic, I've had two pandemic birthdays now, made me realize something. And I don't know if you felt that way in your 40s, but I'm more sure of myself now, Heather, than I've ever been in my life. If I don't want to do something, I don't do it. I don't do something unwillingly, you know? And I love that no is no for me. Like, no, I can't do this ask without the guilt or having to explain what that no is. That is who I am. And I, and I love who I am right now. I will say I am now well through my 40s, but I had the same experience that there is, it's a beautiful time in life. And yet there's huge amount of runway ahead. You know, all things, so much, as, as I said at the, early at the beginning, I only started Indigo when I was just, just shy of 50. I was only, I was almost my 49th birthday. So listen, this has been a joy. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into our conversation with Perdita Felicien. For more ideas to help you live well, including the book featured in this episode, My Mother's Daughter, visit indigo.ca slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Of course, you can follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Well Said was produced for Indigo Inc. by Vocal Fry Studios and is hosted by me, Heather Reisman. <laughs>